Morning, church. Good to see all of you. So good to worship God together. We're going to study his word. So if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up to John's Gospel, chapter 6. All right, we're going to read. Now, John 6 is the longest chapter in the New Testament. Um, so we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to try to take it in in bites. I'm not going to read the first 12 verses. What happens in the first 12 verses is Jesus multiplies the loaves and fishes, works a miracle, feeds a ton of people. And then as you progress through the text, we're going to pick it up in verse 22 and move from there. So if you would, follow along. John 6, verse 22. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, that is the the meaning that was behind the miracle, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty Again, if you'd skip down to verse 47. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples heard this, and they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Skip down to verse 65. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. 
From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. You ever think about how Jesus' relevance comes off the page in his interactions with people? We read these stories in the Gospels and Jesus is pressing home the relevance of his person, his identity for everybody's lives in the entire world. You ever think about how Jesus' titles match our needs? So we're sinners and Jesus is a savior. We're fearful and he's a fortress. We're sheep and he's a shepherd. We're weak and he is strong. We're thirsty and he is living water, John chapter four. We're hungry and he is true bread that's come down from heaven that when you eat it, it satisfies you forever. Jesus has a name that corresponds to all our needs. You see that throughout the gospels and in the New Testament. The question that was put to some of the greatest theologians in the 16th century and they published a document in 1563 called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the catechism was meant to answer basic questions about the Bible. What does the Bible teach? What's the truth of the scriptures? How does the gospel come into contact with all these things that we're reading in scripture? And the Heidelberg question begins with this statement. So it asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer the catechism provides. My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice how comprehensive salvation is here. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. In other words, the point we're supposed to take away from John chapter 6 is Jesus reveals himself to be the bread of life, meaning I've got everything you need. I am your one-stop, comprehensive redeemer. Everything you most fundamentally need is found in me. That's why he says, I'm bread. They get that. They understand bread is what sustains us. Without bread, we die. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the bread. So in the Old Testament, there was a name that God gave to his old covenant people. He gave a number of names. One of the things he said, he said, I want you to remember this name. I am, I am to be called Jehovah Jireh. And it meant the Lord provides. It was God coming close to his people and saying, everything you need I have. You trust me, I'll provide for you. I've got everything you need. I'm the God who fills up all the empty places. That's what Jehovah Jireh means, God who fills up all the empty places. John 6 wants to do a number of things. Essentially, though, John John 6 wants to create faith. So if you've never believed and put your trust in Jesus, it wants to create faith. And then if you've already believed, it wants to deepen faith. 
Remember the, the purpose of John's gospel. He says it at the end in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, everything I've included in this gospel, I've included for this reason, so that you may believe and by believing have life in Christ's name. That's why everything is here in this gospel. So how does this text create faith and how does it deepen faith? It does it by showing us two pictures. One, a picture of need. It's a picture of need. So the first 12 verses of John 6 relates the miracle of Jesus multiplying the five loaves and the two fish, often called the feeding of the 5,000, although verse 10 tells us that it had to be more than 5,000. It was 5,000 just counting the men. So conservatively, this is probably more like 20,000, more 15 or 20,000 people are fed. So there's this huge crowd of people at the beginning of John chapter 6, and Jesus gives them what they need. He actually is going to talk about what they need the most, which they don't understand. But for now, the immediate need is he knows they're hungry, and he's going to feed them. In verse 2, the interesting thing is, you know, verse 2 says he knows that they're not coming for the right reasons. They're not coming because they believe the signs, because they believe he's the one who's meant to be worshipped. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. They're coming because they've seen, they've seen him work displays of power, and they want to see more. And yet, it's interesting that Jesus still feeds them. He knows they came for the wrong reasons, and he still feeds them. The same thing happened you know, earlier in John's gospel, when he encounters the official, and the official comes up and says, my son is dying. Is there anything you can do? Could you work a miracle? And Jesus says, everybody wants miracles. It sounds like he's going to say no, right? That, that's not a good way to start in your response to, will you heal my son? Everybody wants miracles. Everybody's asking for miracles. And yet Jesus says, everybody's asking for miracles. And he says, go, your son is whole. He's, Jesus is such a compassionate savior. We sang about that earlier. So these people have come a long way, right? The very beginning of John 6, they've come a long way out to find where Jesus is, and he knows that on the way, all the way over here, there were no exits with restaurants. So this is a massive crowd of hungry people. They're going to spend time with Jesus. They're going to turn around and go home. There's going to be no exits for restaurants on the way home. So what does Jesus do? He says, I want to feed these people. Look at verse 5. He asks Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? I love this next statement. He asked this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. When he asked that question to Philip, Philip says in verse 7, 200 denarii couldn't give everybody here even a tiny portion of food. We couldn't buy crouton for each individual here with 200 denarii. Now, if you, if you worked in the ancient world, a common laborer got a denarius a day. So that's basically Philip saying, we could work for eight months. I can give you my annual salary. We can't feed all these people. This is way beyond the capacity of human ability. And Jesus, Jesus does the impossible. He, Andrew sees this little boy, and he's got probably two pickled fish, two little slices, small fish, and he's got the poor boy's bread. It's barley, probably little cakes, almost like biscuits. This isn't like massive loaf. It's probably five little biscuits, five little barley cakes, Andrew says, here's this kid, and he brings the kid over to Jesus, and Jesus looks at it, and this bodes well when Jesus says, have the people sit down. It's a beautiful picture. You think about how these signs are meant to point to the identity that Jesus himself is God, that Jesus is 
the Son of God. And since Jesus is God, this text, like all the other ones we've seen so far, is a window into the character of God. What, is the, what do we see when we look through the window? What is God like? Here's the point we've got in our notes. Jesus is a generous king. He's a generous king. You know, this is the, the only miracle that is from Jesus' ministry that is recorded in all four Gospels. The only one. Matthew insists on including it in his corpus. And Mark and Luke and John, they all have this miracle from Jesus' ministry. Surely that's not an accident. So what's it mean? What does it suggest? I think it suggests this, that if your view of God is that he's this hard taskmaster, he's tight-fisted, he's stingy, he's generally cranky, in heaven, right? If that's your view of God, John 6 wants a word. John 6 wants to remap your image of who God is. He goes to great lengths. Matthew says it. Mark says it. Luke says it. John says it. Jesus throughout, you go back later on and look at how many times Jesus references the one who came down from heaven. He's referring to himself. He's come down from heaven. And what did God do when he came down from heaven? In John 6, he comes down from heaven and he tells 20,000 people, sit down, I want to make you some food. Like, does that fit your picture of God's compassion, God's mercy, God's generosity? Is that the God that you worship? The God that you've come to know when you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Stuart Townend is a wonderful modern songwriter. He really writes the equivalent of modern hymns. He was a a part of the writing team that gave us the song, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. He is my light, my strength, my song. He wrote that with Keith Getty. He's written a number of others, another song that he wrote several years ago, and it describes the nature of Jesus' incarnate ministry in these, these words. When love came down to earth and made his home with men, the hopeless found a hope, the sinner found a friend. Not to the powerful, but to the poor he came, and humble, hungry hearts were satisfied again. It's interesting to note that in John 6, Jesus addresses their immediate need on the way to clarifying their eternal need. He's going to clarify they have a more pressing need than hungry stomachs, but he's going to feed them. Really, this is the way of Jesus throughout the Gospels, and it it reflects the mission of the church these 2,000 years, that the mission of the church proceeds in word and in deed. John, this same writer, when he writes his epistles, he says, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So there's the proclamation of the Gospel, and there's the illustration of the Gospel. That's how the church has gotten it done in the world, making Jesus known and making his glory known. You know, Jesus did a lot of evangelism, by way of making contact with the needs of the people who were standing in front of him. So often, he looks for a point of contact. We saw this in John chapter four, for example. He's sitting at a well. A woman is walking up with an empty canister, and what does Jesus say? He sees this woman coming and he thinks, okay, so we'll talk about water. She wants water, we'll talk about water. John five, Jesus sees a man who can't move. He's been disabled for 38 years. Right? And how does Jesus start the conversation? He says, do you want to get well? He starts with the need that this guy feels. 
He's not instantly going to pivot to the need the guy doesn't feel. He's going to start with right where he is. He's going to meet him where he is and then take him further. And John 6, he does the same thing. He looks out, he sees 20,000 people. They're super hungry. He said, let's get these people fed, then let's talk about true bread. He comes to where they are. People are spiritually hungry in this world. That's the reality. You look at John, rather Romans chapter one, and it says that there's this, this thing that God has put in everybody that he has made and created, and you have to suppress it. You have to fight against it with active tools of unbelief to push down this internal voice that says there is a God and you need him. You need to know him. You need to relate to him. You need to, you need to say thank you to this God who has blessed you in all these ways. You don't even know where the good stuff has come from, but it's from God. There, the scripture says that he has set eternity in their hearts. We know instinctively, we're wired to know there's a God out there. Whatever his name is, there's a God, and I need to know him. People are spiritually hungry. People know that something's missing. You see it in Nicodemus' life, and he goes and finds Jesus late at night. He starts asking him questions. Same with the woman at the well. All of Jesus' encounters, you see there's something missing and we know it intuitively. Scott Sauls is a pastor in um, Nashville. He also serves as a chaplain to musicians and bands. Six evenings a year, each year, he's backstage at the Ryman Auditorium and he's giving teaching and interacting and praying with rising stars that are coming through this this amazing venue in Nashville. And he writes about an interaction that he had uh, with a young lady who's become a massive celebrity. Everybody here would know her. And he had a conversation with her backstage. And he said, I, I asked her, um, what's it like to be you? What's it like to have a platform the size of your platform almost overnight? And everybody wants to hear what you say and everybody wants to see you. And the whole world is listening when you talk, this massive influence. And she gave kind of a pat answer and he kind of pressed in a little deeper. He's like, no, really tell me, what's it, what's it like? And here's what she said. Do you really want to know what it's like to be me? Can I answer honestly? Okay, then here goes. Night after night, I have thousands of adoring fans. In just five minutes, I will step out on the historic Ryman stage and relive this experience. And again tomorrow in another auditorium in another city. And again the next night and then the night after that. And from the moment I step foot on the stage until I walk backstage again, I am the loneliest person in the room. There is a, there is a restlessness in us that can only be quieted when we know Jesus. It can't be quieted, it can't be stilled by any degree of earthly success. Any accolades, any fame, any power, any money, any experience. Jesus wants to, this is in your notes for us to remember, to address a hunger that's deeper down. So he talks about, in verse 27, the massive contrast between, quote, the food that perishes and the food that lasts forever. He's working that bread metaphor. There's bread that goes stale and there's bread that satisfies you eternally. It's a picture of need, and the second thing is it's a promise of abundance. 
a promise of abundance that we see in this text. You know, John 6 is a story, it's a true historical event, and it's a tragedy. Um, The tragedy of John 6 is the people love the miracle and they pass up Jesus. They, They love the bread, they're not interested in the true bread, just the bread bread. Like, give us more of the real, like, bread that we ate yesterday, like the miracle stuff, give us more of that. He talks about the bread that satisfies, and they say, verse 34, give us this bread always. It is clearly, and throughout John 6, he's referencing back to the Exodus, when the people were wandering through the wilderness, and what did God do? He provided bread. It was called manna, and literally, what did they have to do to get it? Open the tent And there it is. It falls from the sky, and you just gather it up. There's not going to be any for tomorrow. You gather up today's manna, and then you go back inside and you eat. And there's no more manna till tomorrow. Tomorrow's manna comes tomorrow. So every day they get fresh bread, and that's what the people are basically doing. They're like, okay, we saw the miracle yesterday, but today's a new day. So, like, what time do we show up tomorrow for the miracle? Like, when, when do you pass out the miracle sandwiches tomorrow? All they care about is just more signs. Show us more, show us more power. And Jesus says, hold on, I've shown you that and it was pointing to something else and here's what it was pointing to because here's your pressing need, here's your real urgent need. I'm the bread you need. I'm the one that satisfies you. And what does the text say? It says time and time again in John 6, they complained. It's the same word that's used in the Old Testament in the Exodus, they grumbled They grumbled in the wilderness, just like the Israelites who were overstuffed with miracles in the wilderness. These people grumble for more power displays, more party tricks, right? And that's when Jesus, the tone of John 6 kind of changes, and he he confronts their unbelief. And when he confronts their unbelief, then they push back and they say, who does he think he is? They look at one another, they say, Who does he think he is? Isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? Like, wasn't he on our kids' t-ball team? Like, isn't he the guy that worked at Lowe's in the lumber department? Like, that was that. We know him. Who does he think he is? He's a local boy. We've known him all his life. They totally didn't see it. You know, there's a scene in the movie Elf when uh, Buddy the Elf is going to go on his first date. And he's like, do you want to eat food? Right? And she says yes, and he's just absolutely blown away by that. And they go on the most quirky date ever, right? He takes her out to drink the world's best cup of coffee. And he goes and he's running through the, you know, the carousel door and making himself dizzy. And then he goes outside and he shows her a tree and she shows him this big, awesome Christmas tree. And then they end up on the skating rink. And just he's swept up into all of the moment. And when he's overcome, what does he do? He kisses her on the cheek. And what does she say? You missed, right? John 6 is kind of like that. So these people have come out all this way and they've had the most amazing experience. They've had the Jesus experience. He's met their physical needs and they leave. And John is like saying, you missed, like you missed the best part. You ate the appetizer. The entree was coming next and it's amazing. Blow your mind, it'll change your life. You missed the real bread. You ate the stuff that you're going to be hungry again in four hours, but you could have stayed and you could have had real bread. Jesus is the life-giving bread. 
That is the point that is drummed in all throughout this entire passage. Jesus is the life-giving bread. You might want to mark it. If you mark in your Bibles, you can mark it because Jesus makes it so clear. Verse 33, the bread of God is a person. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, I am the bread. No one comes to me who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 47, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The text is so clear. It's looking out at this tragedy that's unfolding and it's saying you, you ate the bread that perishes and you missed the bread that lasts. And then Jesus says something really mysterious in verse 51. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now that went over like a lead balloon. The people weren't into that. They didn't like what he was implying. They're like, we're not the cannibals. That's, that's not what, we're not zombies. We don't eat people. We don't eat, we don't drink blood. That's not us. You got the wrong people. You, you missed your audience, right? What Jesus says, he says really provocative things. This is the pinnacle of his public ministry. He's never gonna have a bigger crowd than he's got in John 6, and you're gonna pull out the eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon? Of all the sermons, this is gonna be the one that thins out the crowd. They're not gonna come back. Well, look, Jesus isn't afraid to say provocative things because at one point, Jesus does come to the moment where he says, I I'm gonna need to divide this group up. I'm gonna need to find out the difference between fans and followers. I'm not here for crowds, I'm here for disciples. You want in? And so he says stuff like this, provocative stuff that makes people's heads spin and the curious ones push up close and they say, I don't understand what, you gotta clarify, that sounds really wrong. But Jesus is looking at the ones who are staying. The question is, what did he mean? The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, I think this is what he means. Jesus gives this bread at the cost of his life. So often, Jesus uses that metaphor of his, and the apostles do, looking back, of his broken body. It's a reference to the cross, his body being broken for us, broken like bread and given to hungry souls. Now, that metaphor, it's lost on us a little bit because, you know, we... In the modern world, we, um, we've kind of lost the, the ability to track what happened to the things that you ate, right? It's not like, we, how many of you grew up on a farm with actual like chickens, animals, okay, nice and high, all right, cows, okay, so a few of you maybe can get this. The rest of us, like if we want pork loin, we go to Publix and we, we don't think twice. Like you, you want two pounds of ground round, you go to Publix and it's literally shrink wrap. And the shrink wrap doesn't say, hey, this cow died for you. Like it's not signaling and make this worthwhile. Don't eat hamburger helper with this. A cow died to give you this. It's not pressing upon us what happened uh, for this to end up on your table. But, but here's the reality. Something died so you could live. That's, that's the message that's actually there. It was me or Bessie, right? That's kind of the message that's tucked into this. The, the offering of Jesus' flesh 
and his blood is a reference to the cross and Jesus is essentially saying, I'm gonna give my life, I'm gonna die so you can live. It's Jesus saying, it's me or you. One of us is gonna have to die. And if I die, I'm gonna give you life. You ask the question, how do we receive this life? How do we receive this eternally satisfying bread that Jesus talks about? The answer is given in verse 29. They say, what do we do? What, what are the works? What's the punch list? What's the checklist of things we gotta do? And Jesus says, uh, this is the work of God that you believe. Believe in the one that he has sent. Verse 35, no one who believes in me will hunger or thirst again. Verse 40, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 47, anyone who believes has eternal life. And what do they say, the disciples who are still there when everybody else is left in verse 69, the last thing the disciples say is, we believe. We believe. Do you believe? Have you put your trust in the only hope of the world, the Savior who died for our sins, the Savior whose blood covers our sins, whose life was given for our lives. That, that is your deepest need. Whatever our felt need is, that's the ultimate. Underneath it all, that's the thing we need the most. The cross of Christ, if you will, it stands before a dying world with an ultimatum. Jesus holds the cup of God's just wrath against your sin and my sin, and he says, who drinks it, you or me? Somebody's gotta drink this, because God is just. Either you, bottoms up, or I'll drink it. I'm glad to drink it for you. I'll drink this for you on the cross. Here's what you need to do for me to drink it for you. Believe. Believe I'm the only savior that's coming. I'm the only hope of the world. Follow me and I'll drink it for you. Believe on me and I'll drink it for you. Reject me, you'll drink it yourself. Somebody's gonna drink it. That's the reality of the cross. That, that's why, friends, there can be salvation in no one else. Muhammad didn't drink the cup of God's wrath for anyone. Moses didn't drink the cup of God's wrath. Buddha didn't drink the cup of God's wrath. Joseph Smith didn't drain the cup of God's wrath in our place. Jesus alone said, it's finished. From the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath bone dry, leaving not a drop for us to drink if we trust in him. That's the gospel. That's good news. Look at verse 32. So they're appealing to Moses. Jesus cuts them off at the pass. He says, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. From the cross, Jesus offers life to the world. Jesus is the life-giving bread. Jesus gives this bread at the cost of his life and there's enough for the whole world. There's enough for the whole world. The 16th century reformer John Calvin said, the value and worth of the blood of Christ was sufficient not only for the atonement of the whole world, but 10,000 worlds. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's enough for the whole world. You know what's wonderful about um, world travel, if you're not a paleo person, is bread. 
So I feel so bad for paleo, keto, I don't know if that's the same thing, keto people, paleo, I feel so bad for you when you travel the world because the world's got bread. Like everywhere in the world they've got special stuff, special bread you can't find anywhere else in the world. So I've eaten injera in East Africa, I've had uh, mandazi in Nairobi, I mean just mind-blowing, mandazi bread. They brought it out and they said, this is the stuff we only eat at Christmas. It wasn't Christmas, but they said, we brought it for you. Mandazi, ate it in a slum in Nairobi, amazing. I've had beignets in Jackson Square, maybe the best bread on earth. I've had lots and lots of beignets. I've had sopapillas at ponchos, right, where you raise the little flag and they just keep bringing them out. So that might not count, but <laughs> had bread all over the place, right? Baguettes and bagels and waffles and biscuits and all, right? I've had lavash in, in Central Asia. I'd never heard of lavash. I've got a picture of it for you. That's lavash. So when you see how bulbous it is over there on the left-hand side? It looked like when they brought it to the table, it looked like they had thrown like a big bulky sweater on the table and it converted miraculously to bread. So it was like this big sack up here and it was caved in over here. It was just super hot. You break it off. Unbelievable bread. Jesus, I love this. So Jesus is such an excellent teacher because he knows his audience. He knows the whole world understands the bread thing. Everybody gets that bread means life. He even teaches his disciples, pray this every day. Give us today our daily bread. It's a placeholder for all that we need to live today. Give us this day our daily bread. The world understands that bread equals life. Just like we looked at John chapter two, wine equals joy, bread equals life. And Jesus says, I know you understand that. I'm the bread. You, You feast on me. You live forever. It's the promise of Jesus. You get bread that never spoils. I've got life and I've got enough of it for the whole world. 12 baskets left over after you're all full. We've got plenty of it for everybody to enjoy. Look, that, that's why every Sunday I'm pleading with you from whatever text is in front of us to believe. This is in your best interest. Believe. On the only Son of God, He is the one who satisfies us forever. Believe because you can't get life any other way. It's not another Savior coming. He's the only one. To, to believe in Jesus is to, to genuinely trust in Him and follow Him. That's what biblical belief entails. I trust and I'm following you. And to genuinely believe in Jesus Christ is to have, Scripture talks about this in wonderful ways, it is to have the life of the age to come spill over into the present age through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what theologians will call it inaugurated eschatology. It basically just means Jesus doesn't start satisfying you after you die. He starts satisfying you the moment you believe. You trust him and into your life comes pouring joy from another world, peace from another world, transformation from another world. Inaugurated eschatology, the end times coming into our lives through the Holy Spirit. There's a foretaste. It was my dad's maybe favorite hymn. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 
John 6 is your personal invitation to God's feast. Maybe you didn't know you had one. You're looking at your personal invitation to God's feast. You know, in Scripture, uh, bread entails relationship. So the phrase, they broke bread, uh, signifies, it conveys something about warmth around the table, hospitality. It conveys, we're friends here. We're breaking bread here. This table is yours and ours. Come, come to the feast. Let's eat together. Let's break bread together. You know, if you walked into Solomon's temple in the Old Testament, there was a table that was there. And on the table, there were 12 loaves of fresh bread. The bread was always fresh, 12 loaves of it, so that every time you went to worship God, it was, you were hearing God saying, come break bread with me. Come dine with me. Zacchaeus, the most hated man in his culture, a tax collector, and Jesus walks up to the last guy in the city that should have been offered mercy, and he walks up to him and he says, you and me tonight, dinner. Go on to your house. We're eating together. It's an offer. It's an invitation to friendship. And here in John 6, standing in front of 20,000 people, what's God's message? To them, what's God's message to us in John 6? It's come to the feast. Come, let's, let's dine together. Come know friendship with me. Come and believe. And you know how if you're invited to somebody's house, for dinner, what's the first thing you normally say? You'll, you'll say, what can we bring? Right, can we bring an appetizer? Can we bring chips? Can we bring dessert? What, what can we bring, right? And if you ask that question to the text, the text, Jesus gives you the answer. He says, you, you bring nothing. All you do is believe. You, you come to me. You come over, and I've got it all. You come over, and I'll feed you. The end of this passage, everybody's hitting the doors because Jesus has said hard things about what it means to be his disciple. Everybody's hitting the exits and Jesus is standing at the back door and he's holding it open and he says to his disciples, he says, are you leaving too? And what does Peter say? He says, where are we gonna go? You've got the bread. You've got the words of eternal life. You're the only one who can satisfy. Where could we possibly go? Friend, where is your strength running thin? Jesus will be your supply. Where do you feel weak? Jesus' strength is magnified in our weakness. A story that came out, it was actually February, two years ago, February 2018, right after there was a mass shooting at a school, <clears throat> excuse me, in Florida. Of course, all the teachers go back to school the next day and they're, they're thinking about it and they know that the students are probably thinking about it because everybody had it plastered on their screens the night before. Marissa Schimoller was a high school teacher in Ohio. It was her first year as a teacher. She was brand new. She's 24 years old. She goes back to her class heavy-hearted. What do I say to my class? And she also happened to be born with cerebral palsy, so she's confined to a, a wheelchair. She goes in, she talks to her students, and, and she says, I want you to know that I care deeply about each and every one of you, and I'll do everything I can to protect you. But being in a wheelchair, I will not be able to protect you the way an able-bodied able teacher will. And if there is a chance for you to escape in a situation like that, I want you 
to go. Don't worry about me. Your safety comes first. And there was a student in the class who raised her hand and she said, Ms. Schimuller, we've already talked as students and we've decided that if anything happens, we're bringing you with us. We're gonna carry you. You're, you're coming with us. Look at this, the beautiful picture that we see here in John 6 is a savior who says, I'll carry you. I'll carry you in your weakness. I'll meet you with strength. I'll meet you with supplies. There's this assurance that if we belong to Jesus, we don't have what it takes. Jesus says, I do, that's okay. I've got what it takes to get you all the way home. I'll satisfy you in the morning. I'll give you songs in the night. He will be our totally sufficient redeemer who has come down from heaven and his names match all of our needs. We are sinners and he's a savior. We're fearful and he's a fortress. We're weak and he is strong. We're thirsty and he's living water. We're hungry and he's bread that lasts forever. He's bread that satisfies us.